Hello and welcome to episode 174 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rebenots. Hello, Ian. How is your Wednesday? My Wednesday is going well. How is your Wednesday, Jason? Good. You didn't even have to remind me that it was Wednesday this week. I remembered all by myself. I took the opportunity to ensure that you had remembered, but I'm glad that I've, I've beaten it into you. Yeah, I think. we had good cause to remember it's Wednesday because we had a very good interview with the CEO of Contour Airlines just a few minutes ago. We did. Our conversation with Matt Chavitz will be a little bit later in the show. But first, I make sure that you made it home okay. You are recording from home, yes? Yes, I am not trapped in Heathrow. Once again, I pressed my luck even further and I had another very easy, very painless trip through Heathrow unexpectedly. Terminal 3, I had uh, I was flying premium select on Delta, which may or may not have come with fast track. According to Delta, it, it did not, but it turns out it does, and there was no line, and everything was fantastic. I believe you had that, shall we say, enlightening experience with, I truly, truly believe was not a real human being. I don't know. When talking with Delta. I don't know. That bot, the language used by whoever replied, I can't imagine a bot using grammar and sentence structure that poorly. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So you made it home, you're back, and boy, has it not been a quiet week. No, things keep happening. It has not been a quiet day. I'm afraid that we're pressing our luck recording when we are. However, things that have happened already today, Boeing reported its second quarter earnings, Airbus reported their second quarter earnings, and the vote on the Spirit Frontier merger happened finally. And as expected, Spirit and Frontier have terminated their merger agreement. So Spirit shareholders voted today to not move forward with the merger agreement with Frontier. And Spirit says, quote, while we are disappointed that we had to terminate our proposed merger with Frontier, we are proud of the dedicated work of our team members on the transaction over the past many months, said Ted Christie, President and CEO of Spirit Airlines. Quote, moving forward, the Spirit Board of Directors will continue our ongoing discussions with JetBlue as we pursue the best path forward for Spirit and our stockholders. Mm-hmm. So what happens now? I mean... We don't know. They continue to talk. I mean, Frontier goes along and does its own thing. They just had their earnings call this afternoon and basically said, we're going to grow the airline 15 to 20% a year for the foreseeable future with or without a merger with Spirit. And we see the ULCC market booming. We've got tons of planes on order. We see ourselves in a great position. And as we've talked about before, Frontier didn't have a way to lose here. No, I'm pretty sure they won. Well, they could only win. They won one of two ways. One, they acquired Spirit and grew that way. Two, they didn't acquire Spirit and Spirit goes over to JetBlue. And then there's one fewer ultra low cost carrier competitor in the market. Well, not just one fewer ultra low cost carrier. That basically defaults Frontier to being the ultra low cost carrier in North America. They really don't have an equal. I mean, I, I guess you could say Allegiant, but their route network is, is quite a bit smaller. 
Right. There's no one near the size of Frontier if Spirit goes away. Well, that should get the gears turning, huh? Maybe Allegiant and Frontier comes next. Well, we'll see. I mean, we yeah, we will see on that side of things. On the current makeup of, of deals, we'll see Spirit and JetBlue continue to discuss. I assume they'll move forward at some point, and then we'll get to play Will They, Won't They with the Department of Transportation and the Antitrust Division at the DOJ. So that'll be interesting things. So I want to not spend a whole lot of time on this this week because there's not much new news, but I will turn it over very quickly to our chief mergers and acquisitions correspondent, Ned Russell, to ask, Ned, have we reached the end of the Spirit Airlines acquisition saga? Not even close, Ian. Thank you very much, Ned. Great insight as always. And now, on to other news. We've got Jason admitting that he was wrong. That's true. I was wrong. There were day three, or was it day four? I don't know. Late stage orders at the Farnborough Air Show. Thursday orders. Whatever that yeah. is. Three, four, whatever. Four. Yeah. Qatar, in a completely unsurprising move, placed their order for 25 Firm plus 25 options for the 737 MAX 10 if when that aircraft is ever certified and produced. We'll see. So that's terribly surprising. We all knew that was coming. But the next one is a bit odd. It's not really an order per se, but more of a selection of an intent to pick an aircraft to then order later. But it's particularly interesting because Cargo Lux, which is exclusively a 747 operator right now, has selected the 777X freighter to replace its aging 747-400 fleet, which is interesting to see them break away from the 747, but mostly because they don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that. They won't make them anymore, so you got to pick something else. And they're sticking with the Boeing fleet and selecting the 777 XF. So that'll be fun to see. I hope they bring them to Chicago at least when they get a hold of them because I just, well, I just would like to see them. Yeah. The rendering they have in the cargo lux delivery looks quite nice. Uh, of course, it's going to be years before we see this in the making, but I'm definitely looking forward to seeing this aircraft out at JFK or O'Hare or wherever cargo lux is near you. Though I do hope they bring some of their special liveries. They have a couple really nice ones. I hope they bring that over to the 777 fleet as well. Yeah. Before we leave Farnborough, I want to address a question to you, Jason. You said Qatar ordered 25 firm plus 25 option. 25 plus 25 is, remind me again what that number is. 50. And remind me again how many A321neo orders were canceled by Airbus? I believe it was 50, but you're putting me on the spot. Okay. No, it was 50. I'm just pointing out that this was- It's not an accident. Yeah. (laughs) This is our only option. Yes, is what we've got. Yeah. Just a reminder, the the Qatar Airbus riff is still going on. The whole thing with the A350s and the peeling paint and the grounding by the Qatari authorities, that has not gone away. It has not gotten any better. Qatar has still sworn off Airbus. Airbus has still sworn off Qatar. So, hey, yeah, end up with the max. It seems like things are simmering, though. Uh, Simmering because that's the way the court proceedings work right now. Nothing's happening. But the next time they end up in a courtroom, it seems like every time they actually go into court, we get some sort of juicy detail. Here's to the next court date, then. Okay, I'll drink to that. This was not a Farnborough order, but it did come across the desk yesterday, two days ago. Two days ago, just after the air show. I just guess. after Maybe the air they show. were uh, finalizing the order details at the air show and, and, and were dotting their I's and crossing the T's. My favorite part of this order is the number of aircraft that will be transferred via lease and direct purchase from Airbus 
to the airline, how many A320neo family aircraft did Condor order? Well, if I were ordering um, a bunch of new Airbus 320 family aircraft, I would order exactly 41. I think that's a fine number. Yes, Condor taking 41 (laughs) A320neo or A321neo aircraft over the next few years. The announce. So, Jason, you tried to explain this to me earlier, and it doesn't make any sense to me still. But the quote from Condor's CEO says, quote, after we will have replaced our entire long haul fleet with state of the art two liter aircraft by the beginning of 2024, it is the logical next step for us to modernize our short and medium haul fleet as well. I know he's talking about the A330 Neo. You do, but I don't know why they're so into naming the 330 Neo the two liter aircraft. What they're referring to there is that the fuel consumption is 2.1 liters per 100 kilometers. And of course, that's an average number. Sometimes it's going to be more, sometimes it's going to be less. But they are really, really emphasizing the fuel efficiency of the 330 Neo compared to their current aging and inefficient 767 fleet. It's just a strange way of referring to the aircraft. That's all I got. Okay. So yeah, 41 aircraft on their way to Condor. The world's stripiest airline. The world's stripiest airline. There you go. So the first half of the program, in case we're looking at themes here, the first half of the program is the business of aviation. Then we're going to talk with Matt Chavitz in a little bit about, well, the business of aviation, but about a specific type of business. And then in the back half of the program, or, or back third of the program, we've got some investigatory updates and a big one at that. Sticking with the commercial stuff, Emirates is ramping up Gatwick to twice daily, and they're going back to Stansted because why not? Yeah, we know exactly why. Well, we know exactly why. That's true. We know exactly why, and that's because Heathrow told them to pack up and get lost for throughout the summer for at least one of their flights, I believe. There was this big back and forth where Heathrow, which is one of the European airports that was absolutely being crushed by the weight of its own summer success, I guess you could say, at the very last minute instituted a passenger cap that Emirates kind of scoffed back at and said, no, we're not going to cancel a flight last minute and strand 585 people with no alternative to put them on. So we're, we're going to operate it anyway. And they eventually acquiesced and, and they determined alternate plan, but they also are now ramping up at London's other airports. And Stansted resumes on August 1st, which I believe was suspended way back, probably in March 2020. So the people at Stansted are probably thrilled that Heathrow is buckled under its own pressure here and uh, they get one of the world's leading airlines back. There you go. I mean, it's pretty fascinating to see how the, I don't know if it's behind the scenes, but how the machinations of dealing with Heathrow saying, okay, we need to cut flights because this is just not working to, we're going to go to Gatwick. We're going to go to Stansted. We're going to, you know, maybe they'll, they'll parachute people into South. I don't, I don't know what'll happen, but it's Emirates. So you never know. I was going to say it's not a bad idea, but it's a very good idea to spread the load across the various airports in London. They've got them, so you might as well use them. I wish we had that kind of flexibility here in New York. I mean, you've got Stuart. I was just going to say, I can't imagine Emirates saying we can't operate a flight to JFK, so we're going to move it over to Stuart. I don't think anyone would like that. But in London, it's much more practical to ramp up Gatwick. Fair enough. I guess. I don't know how one gets to Stansted, but it is an airport. (laughs) 
Well, no, Heathrow has the Heathrow Express, Gatwick has the Gatwick Express. Stansted, is there even a train there? I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> it is an airport. I like it that. Well, well said, Jason. Thank well you. said. Let's go to the finances of the two largest aircraft manufacturers in the world. Both Boeing and Airbus released their second quarter numbers today, actually, which constitutes this week. But but if we're being specific, it was in fact today. Boeing numbers are mixed, but trending positive. They seem to be recovering. They finally had a positive cash flow, which is really what Boeing, you know, is hoping for. They have a number of aircraft still sitting around. And that's where things get interesting. 290 undelivered 737 MAX aircraft, and about half of those are designated for airlines in China. Yeah, and they still have not approved the MAX for passenger flights. Or did they and the airlines haven't? I I can't even keep track of the timeline at this point. So the aircraft is on its way to approval, but has not received final approval. So right. it, it got the the rescinded, you can't fly it at all. That has been rescinded. But you still can't put it into passenger service. You can't put it into passenger service. So waiting on that particular bit of news is Boeing certainly certainly hoping that that comes sooner rather than later. And it, it, it was really interesting following the one thing I like to do is is follow earnings calls on Twitter because you have different people picking out different things that are are important. So you've got, you know, the financial analysts and you have the folks that are concentrated on the financial health of the company, the, the specific numbers of the financial health of the company, talking about, okay, here's the free cash flow, here's you know earnings, and here's all of this stuff. Then you have the, the more aviation-centric folks who are dealing with the statements that are being made it kind of in the explanation of the numbers. And this is one of the things that that John Ostrauer was writing about today, where he's talking about the aircraft for that Boeing has pre-built that are destined for China. And one of the interesting things that Calhoun, the CEO of Boeing, said was about U.S. policy, you know, with regard to China, and basically Boeing saying we can be an industry leader if we have access to the Chinese market. If we can't deliver planes to China, he didn't say this, but the subtext was, we're screwed. Yeah, pretty much. And meanwhile, at the same time, going off script here, but Comac last week announced that they have completed all flight testing for the C919. So certification for that aircraft is coming up probably very, very soon. And a lot of people, including John Ostrauer, of course, probably leading the way in this, has speculated that they're probably not going to certify the MAX until the 919 is certified itself. But it seems like we're inching ever closer to that. But we'll see what happens. Yeah. So hopefully, things begin to move. In addition, at Boeing, the announcement that 787 deliveries are, if not imminent, then very close. They are Boeing is is certainly having learned its lesson from the MAX and previous statements regarding the 787 is demurring to the FAA about when those deliveries will in fact resume. But all signs point, uh, given the airlines preparing for these deliveries and Boeing basically saying, the work is done, we just need sign off, 787 deliveries look to resume in August. I've heard uh, that before. Most likely. 
this time actually seems it seems well i mean they've been doing enough flight testing and enough registration handovers that it seems like aircraft are ready to ship out the door rather quickly the final point on the boeing orders that the or boeing numbers that we'll talk about for the second quarter was basically Boeing saying, we would love to build more airplanes. We're, we're at 31 on the monthly rate for, for max production. We would love to be beyond that. Calhoun saying if he could get the engines for the 737 MAX, he would build them faster. And today, make that decision today. So an interesting comment about the supply chain, which basically leads us over to Airbus, where they said much the same thing. Adjusting the A320 family ramp up, it was late 2023 for a monthly rate target of 65 on their way to to 75 per month by 2025 the 65 per month target is now moved into early 2024 so basically a delay of 6 months because of supply chain issues so basically we would like to build a lot of planes faster but we don't have the necessary things to build all of these planes. No, it's not great news, but it's a, by no means terrible news, I guess. Much of the constraint now is just, it's simply out of their hands. Yeah, I don't think it's unexpected. No. The other thing I will say about Airbus is officially the A321XLR EIS is moved to early 2024 versus end of 2023, which we had discussed previously. But now this is Airbus saying, yes, that is in fact the case. Okay. All right. Oh, by the way, there is a Stansted Express train. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we cleared that up. Didn't want any mail about that one. No. Can you go back and confirm that there is an airport there though? There is an airport and there's even a train. Okay, good. Yep. All right. Good. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and talk with Matt Chavitz from Contour Airlines about their currently unique style of operating an airline and some of the airlines seeking to to copy that particular model. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's now time for our conversation with Matt Chaffetz, who is the CEO of Contour Airlines, a Part 135 carrier, and he's going to explain all about that, operating, I guess, largely in in the Southeast, but he's going to tell us more about where they'll be going soon. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, Matt. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So tell me about... Contour Airlines versus a more traditional airline that that somebody might think of flying Embraer E-135, E-145 aircraft for American or or United, their regional airlines. What sets you apart from them? Well, I think by and large, it's only the regulatory environment that we operate in. I think on the whole, we try to make the experience as similar to those that our passengers are used to on larger airlines and their regional affiliates. So most of the differences are are behind the scenes, but that does have some tangible benefits to our passengers, like being limited to operating aircraft with 30 seats or less means that when we take an Embraer 135 that was built with 37 seats or an Embraer 145 that was built with 50 seats, when we reconfigure them to seat only 30 in accordance with PAR 135, we respace the remaining rows so that all of our customers have a minimum of 36 inches of pitch, which is the equivalent in terms of legroom to what you'd get in first class on uh, most domestic legacy carrier flights. So 
you know, there are some things that customers will notice, but by and large, it's behind the scenes. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> First class seat pitch yeah. throughout the entire aircraft. That's not a tough sell for me. No, especially when you consider in many of our markets, our fares are very reasonably priced. We sell tickets for $39, $49, in, in almost all of our markets. So you mentioned most of the differences were behind the scenes, and you mentioned Part 135, and I was hoping we could expand on that a little bit for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with the kind of the differences in how airlines are regulated in the US in this particular context. So most mainline carriers are operating under Part 121, and then you have Part 135, which is how you operate. Can you explain some of the differences between those two regulatory regimes? Sure. So the most obvious one and the one attracting a lot of attention at the moment is related to the requirements for our pilots. So one of the first things is that for a PAR 121 carrier, pilots are forced to retire at age 65, and that requirement does not exist in PAR 135. So a captain that retires from American, the A330 or, or 777, when they turn 65, would be eligible to continue flying for us on our Embraer regional jets under PAR 135. So one is the retirement age. The second is the minimum flight hour requirement, which largely applies to first officers. But PAR 121 carriers, for the most part, can't hire first officers with less than 1,500 hours of experience. And that requirement doesn't exist under PAR 135 either. So basically, we can hire older pilots, we can hire some less experienced pilots. And then there are some regulations related to scheduling that are a bit different between Part 121 and 135. But those, I would say, are the biggest ones. And obviously, that opens up your pilot pool to... I mean, can you quantify the expansion that that allows negating the the retirement age and the lesser experience criteria? Is that opening up. Do you have numbers on that? Sure. So putting specific numbers aside, it's not hard to figure out that what makes Contour successful is that we're able to hire from different pools of pilots or pilots that quite frankly aren't eligible for Part 121 operations, which by no means means less safe. Our, all of our pilots go through the exact same training footprint as the footprint that they would go through for this airplane under Part 121 operations. So this is actually a really interesting subject because, as you know, every airline in the world is pretty much claiming that there is a pilot shortage at the moment. And when you look at the U.S. regulations for Part 121 pilots, the pool can only be so big. And I think in particular, when you have airplanes like a PC-12 and a caravan that do a lot of work within the EAS program, for example, And to be a captain on a nine-seat piston airplane or even a nine-seat turboprop airplane are the same requirements that you need to be a captain on a Part 121-operated airplane. You realize that the math doesn't work. If somebody has the experience required to be a mainline pilot, why would they stay and fly a nine-seat caravan or a nine-seat Pilatus? And so... Our regulators have a real issue on their hand, and and you see folks trying to get creative. Republic has filed 
to reduce the hour requirement for people that go through certain types of training. Sky West is mimicking us in trying to create a PAR-135 carrier where they can basically create a pipeline of pilots to flow to their 121 operation. And I saw just yesterday a Cape Air filed for an exemption to have certain PICs not require an ATP certificate. So without question, the trickle-down effect is going to most impact the operators of smaller aircraft. Because like I said, the requirements to be a captain are the same regardless of aircraft size. So it's going to become hardest to make the economics work, and it's going to be least desirable to be flying you know, the smaller equipment that's an important part of our nation's aviation ecosystem. So you mentioned an important part of the aviation ecosystem. Let's talk a little bit about Contour's route network. So I'm looking at the the very nice route map you have on your page. And at first, when you first reached out, I assumed you were mostly in the southeast of the U.S., but you also have a good amount of operations in the northeast, out in Arizona, and also some isolated route out in California, like Crescent City, California to Oakland, California. Can you walk us a little bit through how you select your routes and your cities and why you would choose something like Plattsburgh to Philly? How does that come to be? Sure. Well, at the moment, all but two of our routes are essential air service routes. And for anyone who's not familiar with the essential air service program, basically the federal government subsidizes air service to small communities that back when the industry deregulated in 1978 would have lost air service because it would have been uneconomical for an airline to continue serving them. So the way these markets work is DOT, the U.S. Department of Transportation, puts out a request for proposals for service to a particular community. And that request for proposals does not specify the route itself, meaning it doesn't tell an airline where they have to fly from a particular city. It'll just say, for example, in Page, Arizona, we're looking for a carrier to provide 12 weekly round trips with a regional jet to a medium or large size hub. So we'll respond to that RFP with the amount of subsidy that we would require to operate that. But the selection process is not just based on the subsidy amount. While the department can consider a relative subsidy between bids in making their decision, the most heavily weighted criteria is actually the recommendation of the elected officials in the community, which means that outreach and interaction with the community and reputation, more so than anything, becomes a critical aspect of the selection process. Because prior to making a selection, the community provides a letter to the Department of Transportation with their recommendation. And that recommendation carries a ton of weight. So it's the first thing you're fighting for once your bids go in is is to earn the recommendation of the community. And very rarely does the DOT go against that. That's definitely interesting. I had no idea that there was such a a local aspect to essential air service. I I knew there was a role to be filled there, but I didn't know you would have to go to the local officials in Beckley, West Virginia to basically sell your brand to the locals there to get them to select. exactly how it works, whether it's meetings with the mayor or the airport director or speaking at a city council meeting and presenting about contour. There is a lot of, I don't want to say politicking, but 
we have to sell ourselves and we have to earn that recommendation. And for that reason, our operational performance in our existing markets is critically important. I rely really heavily on our performance, uh, not just operationally in terms of on-time performance and completion factor, but also our commercial performance. Hey, we went in and we took over in this community and we quadrupled enplanements within the first six months. So having a track record of success is multifaceted. And fortunately for us, we've done a remarkable job in, in all the communities we serve. Our communities are extraordinarily happy with us. And so when an airport director calls a community we serve to get a reference on Contour, we not only do we want, but really to continue to grow as a carrier, particularly within the EAS program, we need them to provide a glowing recommendation. So where to next? What are you looking at as far as where to expand your route network, your fleet, the airline as a whole? I mean, I see, you know, we've talked about a concentration in the Southeast, but there's definite expansion West and into New York as well. So North, what are you thinking about next? Sure. So several months ago, SkyWest filed notice to terminate a bunch of their EAS communities. So the first cities that they terminated were Plattsburgh and Ogdensburg, which upon termination, DOT put out to bid. And both communities selected Contour, recommended Contour, and that was approved by DOT. And we began service there on July 1st. There are six other communities that SkyWest has terminated that have recommended to DOT that they transition service to Contour. Those cities are Cape Girardeau, Missouri, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, Paducah, Kentucky, Staunton, Virginia, Clarksburg, West Virginia, and Lewisburg, West Virginia. Those are all ex-SkyWest cities desiring to move to Contour. And so we're just awaiting approval from the Department of Transportation. And if that comes to fruition, then we'll begin service in those six communities. And then there's Altoona, Pennsylvania, which is currently served by Boutique, which is asked to transition to Contour this fall as well. So we have seven new communities in the pipeline that, if approved, would start before year-end. Obviously, those additional markets require additional aircraft, and we've already begun acquiring aircraft from the formerly American Eagle ERJ-140 fleet, the first two of those airplanes to be sold already went to paint and are in the contour livery and going through maintenance and a return to service package right now. So we've got a bunch of airplanes coming, a bunch of new markets, I hope, coming. And then we also have the private jets out of our business. We have a bunch of CRJ200s that were formerly operated in a 50-seat configuration that were converting to VIP airplanes with 15 to 16 seats. We've got seven more of those scheduled to come over the next six months or so. So in short, the next 12 months will probably be the most significant period of growth in the company's history. When all said and done, we'll have almost doubled in size. And I see that you also have a partnership with at least one large airline, American. So how exactly does that work? Would I book a flight on AA.com with a connection on Contour to somewhere like Plattsburgh? Or, or what does that relationship look like? Yeah. So we have an interline agreement with American, which means that your bags are transferred between the two carriers and your ticket is issued as a single ticket involving travel on both carriers. That when you check in for your first segment with one airline, that you get your connecting boarding pass as well on the other. 
So it makes for a pretty seamless travel experience. Very shortly, within the next 30 days or so, I hope we'll be launching the ability to book American flights on our website and, and connections to and from American on our website. Right now on AA.com and through any online travel agency or retail travel agency, basically you can search for an itinerary from any American city to any contour city, and it'll produce results that can be purchased as a single ticket. That's interesting. So to the passenger, it would just seem like they're on any typical American connecting flight, whether it be Piedmont or PSA or anything, except when they get on your aircraft, it's suddenly all first class. That's a nice change. Sure. I mean, there are a few differences, but the most significant difference between a code share agreement and an interline agreement is that we maintain our own identity. So as opposed to a code share agreement, or a CPA agreement with a regional partner where, for example, you're connecting from American to American Eagle Flight 6310 operated by Mesa or operated by SkyWest. It's not connecting to an American flight number. It's connecting, it's American Flight 112 connecting to Contour Flight 3304. So the ticket will still say Contour for the portion operated by Contour. We're not marketed as an American flight. And this may be a silly question, but do you have flight attendants on board? Since I know some 135 airlines, if the aircraft is small enough, they don't need a flight attendant. But do your aircraft have We absolutely have flight attendants. A flight attendant is required on any aircraft that has 20 or more seats. So because our Embraers have 30 seats, not only are we required to have one, but you know we work hard to really make sure that our flight attendants are part of the service experience and not just there for the safety of our Yes. I want to go back to the EAS for just a minute and talk about the timeline on that because SkyWest pulled out of Ogdensburg and Plattsburgh relatively recently, and it did not take you long at all to get in there and begin operating flights. I just assumed that given you're dealing with the Department of Transportation and as much regulation as it is, it would take longer. But have you seen the department saying, okay, we need to kind of keep these things going as another carrier pulls out? Yeah, the department expects the two carriers to work on a transition to ensure that the community doesn't lose air service. So, for example, you know, in Plattsburgh, once the order came out awarding Contour a contract for service beginning July 1st, SkyWest made plans to end their service on June 30th. Literally, SkyWest flew their last flight on the 30th. We moved in and we're up and running the next morning you know, operating and selling Contour as the carrier serving that community. So there was no interruption in service. But we also had months to plan that transition. So probably not much convincing of the locals in that case, seeing as that their carrier was pulling out and, and you popped in and said, hey, we'll fill that role. And they said, okay. Well, in Plattsburgh, they had a bid from Cape Air. And so there were other airlines willing to serve the community. They had a choice. In Ogdensburg, they received a bid from Boutique Air. Really, it came down to them making a choice as to who to recommend. And then DOT, fortunately, produces an award and then typically gives the carrier 60 to 90 days to start service. So the community had options, but they just happened to decide that Contour was their best path forward. Given that you're limited to 30 seats, do you see the ERJ-135-145 long-term being the aircraft 
for the airline, given that there's well not a small number of them around and an available pool, or are you looking at other aircraft for the future? That's a good question. One of the issues right now is that there's no jet that really makes sense to operate in a 30-seat configuration other than the CRJ and ERJ types. And you're right, there are plenty of them, but they're also not going to run forever. Our oldest airplane in the ERJ fleet was manufactured in 1999. Most of them are year 2000 or newer, so they're about 20 years old. Airplanes have a long, useful life. I mean, Delta flew ex-Northwest DC-9s until you know they were 40 years old. That doesn't mean that I'm suggesting that you know we're going to operate these ERJs for 20 more years. But there isn't an obvious replacement, certainly not an obvious jet replacement. There's talk of Embraer producing the TP-70, you know, their new turboprop, which they're saying could be a 50-seat aircraft in a three-class configuration. That may be bigger than what we need. But there's still the ATR-42, which ATR continues to make improvements on but you lose the jet. And that's a compelling part of our proposition. Now, with fuel where it is, the turboprop you know, becomes more appealing. But we want to make sure that we always have a product that differentiates us. And being the only, up until SkyWest announced plans to form their own PAR-135 operation, we were the only carrier in the AS program offering jet service under PAR-135. So... We had clearly differentiated ourselves, and I think we had very clearly established ourselves as the best option for communities that, for one reason or the other, needed a PAR-135 carrier serving the community. Matt, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. We've been speaking with Matt Chavitz, who's the CEO of Contour Airlines, a Part 135 carrier serving mostly the Southeast, but ever expanding. So we'll have to see where they head next. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you. Welcome back. Jason, after we recorded with Matt, you had an interesting idea, one that I don't think is at all practical, but would be rather amusing. Because of Contra's interline agreement with American Airlines, you priced out being able to take the landline bus and a Contour flight, didn't you? I did. It's uh, astronomically expensive, but I thought it would be interesting to see if you could price out an American Airlines ticket without ever actually stepping foot on an American Airlines owned or operated or even code share marketed flight. And yep, you could go uh, Atlantic City to Philly on a landline bus and connect to a Contour American Interline up to Plattsburgh or Ogdensburg or whatever for the princely sum of about $450 one way. I will note that to be fair to Matt, that most of that ticket price was for the bus. Yes, because I assume the pricing was broken in that the system never expected anyone to actually- No one would try and do this. But right now, I'm very quickly trying to see if I could price that out with miles and see if Americans' booking flow will just (laughs) puke all over itself when you try to book it in miles. And yes, indeed, something went wrong. We did not find the match. 200 billion miles. I I don't know what that would be, but you know what? It's not even letting me look up that connecting flight anymore if I wanted to pay in cash. So uh, You broke it. Maybe he made a few calls already. (laughs) Oh, you broke it. 
speaking of broken, this is not I don't even broken. know what this is. Speaking of airplanes that no longer exist. Yeah, speaking of scrapped. So oh where boy. to even begin with this one? All right, here's what happened. There's an NTSB final report out this week about the incident that we first talked about three years ago now in New York, in which an American Airlines Airbus A321 was substantially damaged on takeoff, returned to the airport, and upon landing, it was noticed that the left wing was severely damaged. The final report gets into a lot. What the of heck detail. happened? And this one is just it's one of those things where, you know, everyone initially was like, what did the plane do? This is, you know, the what happened? Something went wrong. Because there was no immediate, oh, the this happened or that happened. Or, you know, so because there was no immediate explanation of what happened in the preliminary report, everyone assumed that this is, you know, we're looking into the aircraft, something must have gone wrong. Did something get stuck? Was there a system fault? What's going on? As it turns out, it's none of that. It's none of that. The probable cause and findings from the National Transportation Safety Board are as follows. Quote, the captain's excessive left rudder pedal input during the takeoff ground roll, which caused a large heading deviation and a left roll upon rotation that resulted in the left wingtip striking the ground. Hmm. Plane did what it was told. The captain just happened to be telling the plane to turn left. Very hard. A lot of left. And I believe you actually have some numbers to back up just how unusual this was. So this is a very interesting thing that the airline said. And traditional note here, the full report will be in the show notes. We've had some questions. Uh, real quick, we've had some questions about where to access the show notes if you're listening to the show. If you're listening on most podcast players, the show notes are just in, you may have to click like expand or read more or, or something on the actual show page to see the full show notes. If you're listening on certain podcast players, they don't display the show notes. And if that's the case, you can always go to the Flight Radar 24 blog and go to the episode page for each episode, in which case we have the full show notes for every episode. So just a quick note. Or call Ian at night and he'll read it to you. I can read the show notes to you. That that would be fine too. Yeah. So what happened was is American Airlines, I'm not sure whether this was at the behest of the NTSB or if they did it just because and then shared the results with the NTSB. But the airline did a takeoff data analysis. American Airlines, and I'm reading directly from the port here, American Airlines examined A321 takeoff data from more than 270,000 company flights that wow. occurred between March 2018 and April 2019. The analysis examined data specifically between the time that the airplanes reached an airspeed of 130 knots and the time that the airplanes reached a radar altitude of 50 feet. Of the more than 270,000 flights examined, only one had a higher maximum rudder deflection. Yet, more than 2,300 flights operated with a higher crosswind component than the accident airplane. Further, the accident flight's heading deviation was more than triple the next highest deviation. 
American Airlines also examined the duration of the rudder application for those flights and found that while several of the other flights experienced a larger crosswind component, the accident flight had the longest duration of rudder application of all the flights examined. Of any, of hundreds of thousands of flights. Yes. And to put some perspective to the damage here, if you haven't seen this, you should really take a look at some of the imagery of the damage to the aircraft, which is so substantial that they scrapped it there on the ground at JFK. It's pretty dramatic, but I I think they said that the left wing of the aircraft was damaged to the point where the wingtip was raised up six inches above the wingtip of the right wing. So the damage Mm -hmm. to the aircraft was really, really quite incredible. Take a look at the images. You'll see the the huge gash in not quite the wingtip, but the edge of the wing where the runway distance remaining sign is actually embedded in the wing. Yeah, not great at all. The wing scraped along the ground for a distance of 323 feet. That's a long way. This aircraft was one bout of bad luck away from essentially crashing on the ground on 3-1 left at JFK. They were exceedingly lucky that the aircraft did not roll or the wing did not dig in or they didn't hit something else that was Anything more substantial. Yeah. Yeah. That they hit an object that was more than likely engineered to break away if it was impacted. So that's good. That's the way it should be. That's the way it's supposed to work. What's more alarming is when you read the cockpit voice recorder transcript. Of course, there's no audio because that's protected, but we do have the transcript and it's pretty baffling reading what's going on. So it basically starts off where they're going down the runway. Everything's fine. They say flex, flex, set, 80, check, V1, rotate. And then you get a dual input voice and it just says whoop, which I'm assuming is the alarm sounding for uh, dual input. The next line is your airplane, your airplane, your airplane. I don't know what's going on, what the expletive deleted happened. I don't know. All the engines are good. Positive rate, gear up. What the blank just happened, it just rolled on me. What the expletive deleted is that? Are we continuing? There was utter confusion in the flight deck on what just happened to that aircraft. The more you read, the more you get down, they discuss it. They say, well, the engines are fine. It felt like maybe we lost an engine and rolled a bit, but that's not what happened. Both engines are are rolling fine. The pilot flying, maybe not the captain. I'd have to actually go back and look at that. Immediately goes to blame the aircraft. He goes, it was... was So the captain was the pilot flying and he then later transferred the control of the aircraft to the first officer while he figured out what they were going to do. Right. So the captain is seen in in this transcript as basically bashing the aircraft. Blank airplane, I swear to blank. Blank hate flying this with any kind of crosswind. Goes on, (laughs) not going to work tomorrow. They want to take some time off because it was a very, very dramatic takeoff. Then they discussed, do they need to return to JFK? But they don't notice any degraded performance on the aircraft, which is hats off to Airbus. They nearly crashed the aircraft and there's a piece of airport infrastructure in the wing and there's a giant gash and they can't even really tell there's any issue with the aircraft until later on when a passenger actually informs the cabin crew that, hey, the wing doesn't look right. Somebody should look at this. And then they do determine that they need to go back to JFK. But the announcement that the pilots make 
to the cabin crew after talking with the flight attendants is just really disconcerting that they're blaming the aircraft, that they isolated a malfunctioning system. None of that actually happened, that the aircraft did exactly what the flight crew told it to do. And it's just very odd. But thankfully, at the end of the day, they returned to JFK. The aircraft was scrapped because it was so damaged, which, which should tell you how badly the damage truly was. And we're told the pilots are still flying for JFK today after being admitted to the ASAT program. Basically, you learn from your mistakes. And hopefully, this becomes a part of crew training for American and other airlines that they learn from this issue. And that's the end of that. Whew. A very costly mistake. Yes. I'm going to read the transcript, the announcement that one of the pilots made to the cabin, just to give you a sense of what it was like. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. If I can have your attention, please. We've got an issue with the airplane involving our flight control computers, and I'm not batting that for emphasis. I'm reading verbatim here. We've had flight control computers, and we've made the decision to return to JFK Airport and land the airplane and let maintenance folks take over. Should be touching down in JFK in about 15 minutes or so. No cause for alarm. The aircraft has been secured with the faulty system isolated, and she's handling very nicely at this point, but no sense in continuing to LA with a damaged aircraft in this particular condition. So it's just a little disconcerting to me that they would be so quick to blame the aircraft to the point where they actually tell the passengers on board they isolated a faulty system. There was no faulty system. It was functioning perfectly, but... In the moment, I guess, they said what they believed was the case. And at the end of the day, they got the aircraft back to JFK without incident and truly did not know the extent of the damage until a ground worker plugged their headset in and said, uh, guys, your aircraft is really broken. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, one way of putting it. Yeah. One of the last pieces of text on the transcript is, holy blank, good thing we came back. Yep. Yeah. So it's good to have closure on that one. Final result. Yeah, this happened in 2019, and the investigation just kind of went silent for years. NTSB really didn't put out any sort of investigative update, and then seemingly out of nowhere, they just dumped the final report, which is good to finally see it. Yeah, not great, but glad that we have the report. Glad they made it back safe, and glad that hopefully lessons are learned because that's the point of these reports is that lessons are learned. Yeah. There were a couple of people reacting to the fact that the pilots are still flying for American. And well, that's it would be wrong to fire them on the spot for something like this because you should not create a workplace environment where if you make a mistake or if something goes wrong, you're automatically fired because then nobody's going to learn from their mistakes and people will be afraid to speak up when something does happen. So this is kind of, at the end of the day, exactly what should have happened. Yeah. I mean, the number of accidents, and this is not me thinking this, this is looking at statistics here. The number of The number of accidents that have been prevented by people speaking up because they felt free to do so, you know, far outweighs, I think, any downside to that method of safety culture. Yeah. Well, even in the transcript, they were already mentioning the ASAP program. So there was no indication <laughs> that they were ever going to you know, brush this off or pretend like it wasn't a thing. Right. They went by the book, which is great to see. So let's move on to something that's also good. not <laughs> great news. Not Yeah, not good. So today, the Office of Special Counsel forwarded to the President of the United States 
a Department of Transportation report because the special counsel's referral of disclosures of wrongdoing, which is basically whistleblowers at the FAA and Southwest, said, hey, there's something going on here. You should take a look. And the report points to Southwest Airlines' interference with FAA safety investigations, including stonewalling the safety investigations by not providing the requested data, as well as demanding that those same investigations be wrapped up quickly. So what the report alleges, or what the whistleblowers allege, and the report substantiates is that the FAA, quote, knowingly permitted Southwest Airlines to engage in unsafe and improper actions that compromised the safety of the flying public. What happened was is Southwest bought a bunch of used 737s from foreign carriers. And what the report details is the lack of oversight on ensuring that those aircraft meet all of the FAA regulations for usage in the United States. Quote the, and I'm just kind of picking from the report here to highlight some of the findings. This is under the section failure to oversee Southwest Airlines' use of Skyline aircraft. The agency determined that the FAA officials permitted Southwest Airlines to fly 49 of 88 Skyline aircraft without verifying that they conform to FAA standards. Not good. No, not good at all. Not good. Thank you to the whistleblower for blowing the whistle. So the general thrust of this report is that the FAA and Southwest had too cozy a relationship. Boy, that sounds familiar. It does, doesn't it? It does. Almost paints a picture of repeated issues within that particular agency. Yes. And well, agency and airline because of Southwest's What's the word I'm looking for? I, I suppose prominence. Um, send, prominence. Thank you. That's actually the word I'm looking for in the development of the 737 Max and things like that. So, an interesting thing. Well, to read through, it's a bit dry because it's a legal document, but it does raise some interesting questions and answers some others. So, we'll put a link to some breakdown of what the report says and the full report itself in the show notes so that you can do a little light reading if you so choose. Jason, please tell me what happened over Iran recently with two Pakistan International Airlines aircraft. There was a <laughs> an air traffic control incident where a controller issued a command for one aircraft to descend directly into the path of another, which just happened to be in this case two Pakistan International Airlines aircraft, one at triple seven, one in A320. That's just bad luck. But in this case, TCAS saved the day, and that's a traffic Yay. collision avoidance system, something along those ways. It's the automated system on board pretty much every aircraft that predicts conflicts of air traffic. So if in this case you had one aircraft descending through the flight path of another aircraft, and it will automatically determine that there's an issue and, and it will issue a resolution advisory on what to do. And pilots are supposed to strictly follow what TCAS says. Ignore air traffic control. If TCAS says go up, you go up. If TCAS says go down, you go down. And that is exactly what happened in this case. The pilots of both these aircraft did what TCAS told them to, and that was the end of that. Excellent. Love I like when it. 
you yeah. Go on. You like it. Go on. I like it when technology works. Yeah. I like it when things that are designed to prevent midair collisions work. And the thing about that is the technology has to work, but also the humans listening to the technology actually need to listen to it because unfortunately we've seen in the past, if the humans don't listen to the technology, bad things happen. So we've Bad seen pilots in the past yeah. ignore TCAS resolution advisories to tragic consequences. In this case, everyone did what the machine told them to, and they were okay. But just, just a little odd that it was Pakistan aircraft, you know, well, yeah, what are conflicting the odds? with each other over Iran. Yeah. Like, yeah. You'd expect that, oh, maybe over somewhere in Pakistan, but Iran? Okay, that's just bad luck. Let's move from Iran over to India, and let's talk about something that Ajao Atani sent over today. He goes, you know, this is certainly of interest. You're certainly newsworthy. You should talk about it in the podcast. And I said, okay, oh, that's interesting. And then clicked on the image that he sent over. This is a DGCA interim order about SpiceJet. Basically saying, you're not doing a good job. Please stop running your airline the way you are. And you can only operate 50% of your flights for the next two months. Can you elaborate? I mean, I can, sure. Basically, what we're talking about here is there is great concern on the part of the Civil Aviation Authority in India that SpiceJet is operating aircraft, they say, with, quote, degraded safety margins. That's not good. Poor internal safety oversight, inadequate maintenance actions. A financial assessment revealed that they're not paying their suppliers. And so they're not getting the spare parts they need. And so they're operating basically without enough parts to not have their aircraft operating on MELs. So the minimum equipment list, basically saying if something breaks, can we still fly the airplane with this, even if this thing is broken? And so SpiceJet has been relying heavily, apparently, on the ability to continually operate the aircraft, even if something is broken. Usually what the MEL will say is, you can operate with this part broken, assuming these parts are still working, or you can operate with this part broken, assuming you fix it within one cycle, or three cycles, or so many hours, or something like that. So they've been relying on the ability to do that. All that said, the Civil Aviation Authority in India says 50% of your flights can only be operated no more for the next eight weeks while you will be under strict supervision. Huh. I mean, we have a lot of airlines around the world rolling back their flight schedule, but not for that reason. Not for that reason, no. And I think SpiceJet had already rolled back its flight schedule. I don't know if it was an anticipatory action on behalf of the airline because they knew this was coming, but- not great. No, not, not great at all. Oh. Let's end the show with one thing that is great and with one thing that, Jason, I'm relying on you to single-handedly stop at the next air show. Uh, here we go again. Tell me about the A400 and what's on tap for that. Ah, I see. Yeah. The A400M, which is Airbus's propeller-driven, multi-purpose military aircraft, kind of like the C-130, Airbus tweeted the other day a very nice video of a modular water bombing kind of roll-on, roll-off assembly for aerial firefighting, which is pretty cool. They dropped 20 tons of water in less than 10 seconds at a minimum speed of 125 knots and minimum altitude of 150 feet 
basically it's just a module, a water tank that they roll on board the aircraft and two guys or two airmen or whatever, I don't know who would operate this, but it was in conjunction with the Spanish Air Force, I believe, but two people with two very large, probably very satisfying handles were thrown and then all this water is just spit out the back of the aircraft. Very cool video and I very much want to be one of those people who gets to move that lever. I don't know how you get that job, but But I I wish you the best of luck. I want that job. That looks like fun. But it's very interesting. It's a modular thing. There's no modification needed to the A400M. But Ian, before we started recording, you told me that this already actually exists on the C-130. Yeah. So the C-130 has had this for well nigh on 50 years. The C-130 version is called MAFS, the Modular Aerial Firefighting System. And it's a temporary conversion to water bomber. There's a little bit more involved in the MAFS system. I think it takes basically a day to roll the system on and install it entirely because I don't know if you need to, but generally they replace the left rear exit door in the cabin and that provides the nozzle for the pressurized retardant release. Interesting. So the A400M's it just dumps system it out the is back different. Of your <laughs> it's basically a shipping container full of water that they open and let gravity and inertia do the work for them. So a bit of a different system, but really interesting. Now, yeah. to close the show, Jason. Yes, sir. I shall rely on you to single-handedly prevent this from ever happening. What is Airbus doing with the A350-1000? Okay. Well, if you've ever flown an A3, well, if most of you have flown an A350, you have probably been relatively comfortable. It's right there in the name. It's the extra wide body aircraft. And the economy layout is 333. So you have three seats along the window, three in the middle, and then another three on the other window section. It's quite comfortable. The seats are quite roomy. There are a couple of airlines, very low-cost, long-haul airlines that have a 10-abreast layout. But now Airbus looks to be doing that for basically the future standard layout of the A350-1000 to better compete with the 777X. They will be able to carry over 400 passengers, which is closer to the 777X's 426 in two classes. And they're going to accomplish that by slimming down the side walls. So they claim they won't have to reduce seat width to add this extra seat. It only adds about 10 to 20, up to 30 seats, depending on how tightly spaced the seats are per row. I mean, I don't like it, obviously. They tried to do the same with the A380 to save it, and history has proven that that was not successful, and no airline ever opted for that 11 abreast layout. But it's sad that Airbus is going to take this very comfortable aircraft and and potentially add an extra seat in every single row and make everyone that much less comfortable to add maybe 30 passengers per seats. I don't know. I don't like it. The same thing happened on the 777. We all know that, that 343 is the new, new, not even the new standard, the new norm for that aircraft. But it looks to be coming to the A350 to better compete with the 777. Can't blame them. Doesn't mean I have to like it. I mean, I think that's the best summation of it. It's coming. It's not going away. It's what is needed to compete. Doesn't mean we have to like it. Yeah. It doesn't mean that all aircraft eventually taking an A350 will opt for this. They can opt to take an economy layout with one seat per row if they wanted to. 
But this gives the airlines more choice to, if they want to select a 10 abreast option instead of nine, they won't be able to do that on already existing aircraft since this requires modification to basically slim down the sidewalls to let that extra seat be placed. But this has been rumored for years and years and years. So nothing particularly new here, but now they say we're going to do it. Yeah, now it's going to exist. Yep. The decision has been made. Still don't like it. And that's fine. Yeah. You don't have to like it. Nope. Now, I'm going back to your comment about you could take one seat per row. Okay, so let me let me throw this out there. And Jason, this is for you and for anyone listening. If you took one seat per row, where would you put that seat? Would you put it in the middle of the aircraft? I think you And then to... kind of walk over to the windows? Or would you put the seat hmm. next to one of the windows? You know what? Probably near the windows. I mean, do it like in E145. Have a single seat right near the window. Everyone loves that seat. And then just have the rest of the cabin to do whatever you want. You could with. put a shuffleboard course there. A big one. A big one. Bowling alley. You can do whatever you want with that space. That would be fun. Tricky on takeoff, though. If only I had a billion dollars. If only. Okay. This has been episode 174 of AvTalk. If you have enjoyed this episode, we thank you for listening. If you have not enjoyed this episode, we thank you for reaching all the way to the end, having not enjoyed the episode. Either way, impressive. Impressive. And leave a rating or review or go off and tell your friends how much you like this podcast, how charming and wonderful Jason is, how mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. something I am, whatever. But we appreciate you spreading the word so that we can keep doing the podcast and keep doing what we love and sharing that with you all. So thank you all so much for listening. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.